your Bible, I would encourage you to turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel. This is in the Old Testament. There's the Old Testament, the New Testament. Um, This is describing events that took place nearly 900 years before the birth of Jesus. And it's about the, the rise of kingship in ancient Israel. And so we have been introduced finally to King David in the narrative that two weeks ago we looked at the anointing of David. We saw David in in service of King Saul. Uh, We said that David's first job after being a shepherd was to be a, a music therapist. That is, the spirit departed from evil King Saul that he would be afflicted. Uh, and that is, David played his music that, that the spirit would be, would be lifted, um, that it was an aid to Saul. But then today we come to arguably one of the most famous chapters in the Bible, that this is the story of David and Goliath, that this, this makes it into all of the children's Bibles that you own. This story is, is even in popular language, we might talk about a, a, a David and Goliath struggle uh, where you have a large foe um, and, and you're, you're facing it with meager resources. But as, we, as you f- even look, flip through your, your Bible, you'll notice that chapter 17 is an incredibly long chapter, that the, the story slows down, that the inspired author the, who is putting this story together for us, that, that he takes so much time to describe this battle between David and Goliath. And it reminds us that, that, that details matter. And so as I considered how to, to preach this chapter, I, I didn't want to just preach the whole chapter at once. Um, one, it's a very long passage just to read. Uh, but then also I think that it would miss some of what the, the author is trying to highlight, that the details matter, and that's why he slows down and takes time. So today we're going to be looking at verse 1 through verse 30, and then next week, Lord willing, we'll look at verse 31 to the end of the chapter. So again, this is First Samuel chapter 17, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Succoth, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Succoth and Azekah in the Ephmadamon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in the line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed six hundred shekels of iron. 
and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the name of the three, the M, the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him was Abinadab, and the third, Shammam. And David was the youngest. And the three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an afah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also, take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousands. See if your brother are well, brothers are well, and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And he talked with them. And as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, 
What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the man, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray for guidance of your spirit both to for me to speak and for all of us to understand. And so we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as we consider this story, you can visualize what, what is happening here, the setting that Israel has gathered at a place called Succoth, which is about eight miles from the Philistine city of Gath, about 15 miles from the Israelite city of Bethlehem, the, the city of David. And it says that the, the two armies are gathered over a valley. And really running between the valley was uh, what's called a wadi, a dry riverbed. And it would have water at certain times of year, but most of the year it would be dry. And then you see the, the imagery that on one side of the hill, there is the, there's the Israel's army um, arrayed with all of their armor. And on, on the other side of the valley is the Philistine army. But it's a stalemate because neither army wants to go down the hill and up to the other side, uh, because really the first army to attack would be in a, a very weak place. No one wants to, to go down and then up again while under enemy fire, and so they're waiting for the other side to attack. And you'll see in the text that the stalemate actually had lasted for 40 days. And so you can imagine yourself then in the, the Israelite army. You're looking across the valley. You see the, the Philistine army and then suddenly you see this imposing figure walk from the Philistine rakes down the hill into the, the no-man's land between the two armies. And you see the description of him in verse 4, that he's incredibly tall. The text says that he is six cubits and a span. And that's about nine and a half feet and yet that may seem unbelievable to some of you. How could somebody be nine and a half feet tall? But even according to the Guinness Book of World Records, there was a man who was born in 1918, Robert Wadlow, who was eight feet 11 inches, and so less than a foot shorter than Goliath. And so if you think in the, 
the last hundred years, there was someone who was very close to that height. As you take all of human history, it's not unreasonable to think that there could be somebody over nine feet. And you see that even as you read the, the histories in the Bible. When Israel first came into the promised land, it said that there were giants in the land, and they were afraid of the great stature of many of the, the Canaanites. And so this Goliath appears to be in that line of, of very tall, imposing individuals. But it's not just his height that was the problem. We see this description of his armor, and according to the commentaries, this is the longest description of armor in the Old Testament. So the, the ne- I talked about how the narrative slows down and takes time to describe every aspect of his armor. And I'm going to read from verse 5, but I'm going to read it in the New Living Translation, which is more of a paraphrase, but it updates some of the, the measurements and some of the weights and so that it's easier to understand in modern terminology. It says that he wore a bronze helmet, and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. And think, 125 pounds is pretty heavy. Uh, when I was young, we had chickens, and we used to get these 50-pound bag, bags of chicken seed. And I remember trying to lift those as a child, and they were very hard to lift. Um, but this is almost three of those bags. I mean, there are probably some here who weigh under 125 pounds. So this is heavy coat of mail. But then it says that he also wore bronze leg armor, and he carried a, a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. Again, think of working out with a 15-pound dumbbell. But that there's this iron point on the end of his spear that weighed 15 pounds. And it's significant that it was iron. This is the very beginning of the Iron Age, moving into from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. And so this is also state-of-the-art alloy, of the time, a far stronger metal than what most of the Israelites would have had. And so you you think of this imposing picture of Goliath the warrior. And you remember back in chapter 16, God says that we shouldn't look on the appearance or on the height of stature because the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance but the Lord looks on the heart. That was chapter 16, verse 7. And as much as you would want to believe that if you were part of the army of Israel, that when Goliath marches out between the two armies, you're mostly looking at his outward appearance, and you're, you're impressed. Because in a sense, he was the ancient equivalent of a tank in warfare. Because of that armor. I mean, imagine a World War II soldier with a machine gun facing a tank, that the tank would be unassailable with his ability. And that's the way it would be for any warrior, no matter how brave they were, to go and to face Saul. His arm was longer, his spear was longer, that he could kill you before you even got close enough to strike back. And 
looking at it from the surface, the bow and arrow wouldn't be a lot of good. Conventional weapons wouldn't be a lot of good. And so you see that even Jonathan, who was, wasn't afraid to go up and climb a steep embankment to face the Philistine garrison, he can't do it because he knows it's too much. Saul can't do it. And so what's the response? But of course, as we describe this giant Goliath, we can think of the, the Goliaths that we face in our own lives. That you could think of job loss or cancer or disease or broken relationships. Or you could think of three spiritual Goliaths that we face. The one spiritual Goliath that we face is sin, our own sin nature in our heart. That so often when we look at our our patterns of sin or addiction or selfishness, that it seems like this unassailable giant, that we don't think we can overcome it, we can't face it by our own strength. Or consider the Goliath of death. Remember, the wages of sin is death. But you consider death, your own death, or the, the reality of death when you confront it in a loved one, that death can seem like the, the great Goliath clothed in armor that's unassailable, that no one can defeat. Or even beyond that, the, the spiritual Goliath of Satan, spiritual evil, that in the, the storyline of the Bible, yes, Goliath is a real historical person, that he really lived, but he's also a picture, a type of Satan who's represented as a, as a dragon, as a lion seeking someone to devour. This embodiment of spiritual evil, defying the people of God, bringing reproach on the people of God. That, that, and look at what Goliath says in our text. Look at, at verse 8. That he stood and he shouted, Why? Have you come out to draw for battle? Am I not a Philistine, or are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants. I defy the ranks of Israel this day. And so he's just heaping shame and reproach on God's people just like Satan does to us spiritually. So then the question is, how will we respond to the Goliaths, to sin and death and the devil? And we see three possible responses as we look at the way people responded to Goliath in our text. That the first response is fear. That is, he defies the armies of God. Look at how they respond in verse 11. It says, When Saul and all Israel heard these words in the Philistine, of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Dismayed and greatly afraid. It says, even Saul is afraid. And one of the commentaries pointed out that when you try to, to put your trust 
in human strength and human wisdom that there's always going to be something bigger and stronger, that, that any human source of strength will fall short in the end. And so if you trust in money, there's always someone richer. If you trust in intelligence, there's always someone smarter. If you, if you trust in good looks, there's always someone more beautiful. And remember that Israel put their trust in Saul in part because of his stature, that he was a shoulder above everyone else. They said, here's a brave warrior who can, who can fight our battles, who can win a victory for us. But then there's always someone taller, someone stronger, that no one can face Goliath. And so the stalemate continues. Everyone is afraid. But then, of course, we can be afraid of our spiritual Goliaths as well. That we, you look at your, your sin, your, your patterns of selfishness and pride, and you can be afraid of your own ability to hurt other people, your own ability to, to fall short of God's standard. And there's some truth in it that when we consider sin apart from the grace of God, it should make us afraid that we can't face these things with our own strength. Or when you consider death, that it, when you have cancer or when you're, you feel your body beginning to fail, or you're considering the, the death of a loved one, that, that fear can be a natural response to death because death is this great enemy that we face in life, that it's the, the, the Goliath that seems like it will have the the victory in the end, and that we can be dominated by the fear of death, where the fear of death controls everything, and underneath that, the fear of spiritual evil, that you look at evil in the world, and you can be afraid that, that the evil of the world will overwhelm you. And I'm sure that many of you have experienced evil in your own life, and so you're afraid of the evil that could come, the spiritual Goliath that will come upon you. And so you're tempted to run away, to be afraid, just like Israel in this text. But then there's another response that we see here. The first response is fear, but another response is frustration, which often flows out of our fear. And you see this in David's older brother, Eliab. Look with me at verse 28 in your Bible. It says, now Eliab, David's eldest brother, heard when David spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Now remember, this was the son of David who when, or sorry, the, the, the brother of David who when uh, the prophet Samuel saw him said, this must be the true king because he also was tall and he looked like a king and a great warrior. But yet when he hears the, the words of hope from David, that, that he lashes out in anger at his brother and accuses him of leaving the sheep, even though the text is very clear that he left the sheep with of keepers, and that he wasn't irresponsible. And 
implies that David's just coming down to, to see the battle. And he says, I know your heart, you have bad intentions, but it's really his own heart that is dark, turned away from the Lord. And this can happen to us as well, that sometimes when we have fear of the spiritual Goliaths in our life, that when we see others who have hope or have peace or have confidence in the face of sin or in the face of death or in the, the face of spiritual evil, that it's easy to react with frustration, with cynicism, to say, well, you just don't understand. Just wait till you face what I've faced. Just wait till you have experienced the darkness that I have experienced, that you may seem happy, but that's just naivete. That's not any kind of true grounded hope, that you just need to, to grow up and understand the way the world really is. And maybe that's how you feel this morning, that you, you're not just fearful, but you're frustrated at the darkness that you see in your life or in the world or, or in your family, and that you're tempted to, to lash out at those around you who seem to have hope. And so that's the, the second response. So we looked at fear, frustration. But then the third response is faith. And you see this from David, who is introduced again in verse 12. It says, Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse. And if you were to go and read the book of Ruth, and you come to Ruth chapter 4, you see that he stands in the, the lineage of Ruth and Boaz, that he has the godly heritage, that unlike Goliath, this great warrior, that he comes from a, a humble, obscure family that had faithfully worshipped the Lord and passed that faith on from, from generation to generation. And then his aging father, Jesse, gives him a mission to, to carry food and provisions the 15 miles to the battlefield to his brothers, and most likely David wasn't serving at the front because according to Numbers 1 verse 3, 20 was the military age in Israel. So we don't know exactly how old David was, but he was younger than 20. And so he was still presumably working as the, the music therapist for King Saul, uh, but that he was going back and forth and also caring for his father's sheep, and then here caring supplies to the front. And the text shows us as he approaches the, the army, they hears the battle cry. He carefully leaves his provisions with the appropriate person. Again, you see his responsibility. Uh, and then he goes down and he sees Goliath again come out to the no man's land with his armor defying the ranks of the, the living God. And then he hears that Saul will reward anyone who can defeat Goliath with marriage to his daughter and great riches and great honor, but still no one wants to face Goliath because it seems like an impossible task. And then you see David's statement of faith in verse 26. This is the first time that David speaks in the entire Bible. Up until this point, he's been silent in the narrative. And so it's significant when we get to hear his voice in the text for the first time. David said to the men who stood by him, 
what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So David here has the, the eyes of faith that in all of the frustration, all of the fear that he is the first one to mention God in this entire situation. And I don't know if you've ever had this. I've definitely had this where I'm confronting a problem and I'm problem solving. I'm trying to deal with it. And then suddenly somebody says, well, let's pray. Or God has something to say about this. And suddenly you remember, oh yeah, God makes a difference for life. And that's why he calls him the, the living God. And he's saying that, that the Philistines have an idol of stone. They don't have a living God who really, truly exists. But he's saying that, that we as the people of God have a living God who is infinite and eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That we have the living God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We, we have the living God who, who makes promises and then keeps his promises to his people. And so David is, is asking, if there is a living God in Israel, the creator of heaven and earth, then shouldn't this make a difference for this situation as we face the Philistine army and as we face Goliath? And it's the same for you and for me that we need this, what we could call theological vision of David to put all of the events of life through the, the lens of the reality of God, that there is a living God who rules and who reigns. And so when you consider your sin, there is a living God. And so in one sense, that's scary because our sin is an affront to a living God. It's not just a, a bad habit. But then also there's hope when we consider our sin because there is a living God of hope and mercy and grace. Or when you consider death, does it make a difference when you consider your own death or the death of a loved one to know that there is a living God who rules heaven and earth, to, to see death with those theological lenses that we can put on by the grace of God to, to reinterpret what's going on, or when we confront powers of darkness and evil to know that God is more powerful, that He is the one who can gain the victory, that we don't have to be afraid, we don't have to be frustrated, that we can respond with the eyes of faith. But then ultimately, as we pull all of this together today, we need to ask the question that we've asked several times in this series as we've been going through 1 Samuel. Where are we in this text? And this is where I think often that the Sunday school teaching of the Goliath story can go the wrong direction. That we want to, to see ourselves as we're the David and we're overcoming the Goliaths of our life through, through bravery and perseverance. But I loved what Richard Phillips said in his commentary on this passage. He says that as we approach this great chapter, we should realize that David's victory 
does not primarily foretell triumphs that we will achieve by faith, but rather the victory of Christ for our salvation. David, as hero and king, presents a foreshadowing portrait, what theologians call a type of his greater son, Jesus. And so just as we could say that Goliath is is pointing to spiritual reality of Satan, sin, death, that David is, is pointing beyond himself to the great son of David, the, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And that it's, it's, it's Jesus who gains the victory because ultimately we are a lot more like Israel who is afraid, knowing that we can't face the, the Goliaths of life. Or we can be a lot more like Eliab in the text who's frustrated and lashing out at those around him. But when we look at Jesus, he's a lot more like David, or we could say David is a lot more like Jesus, because Jesus comes to to defeat sin, to defeat death, to defeat the devil, and he does that by pouring out his blood for us, by his body being broken, his blood being shed, so that we can be forgiven and accepted. And as we consider facing the Goliaths of life, no matter what it is, whatever struggle you face today that feels impossible to overcome, to recognize your inability to overcome it from your own strength, and to recognize that your only hope is to hide behind Jesus, the true son of David, to take refuge under his robe, to to take shelter under his wing, to be protected from everything that will become, to be clothed in his righteousness. But as we come to this meal, you don't have to be a a member of Hope Church or a Presbyterian church, uh, but to be one who is trusting in Christ. But that means that if if you're here and you've never repented and trusted in Jesus, if you're trusting in yourself to overcome the Goliaths of your life, that we're glad that you're here, but we'd encourage you to wait, to not take this that it would be a form of hypocrisy, it would be spiritually damaging to you to take this without believing in Jesus. But again, for the rest, um, the only qualification is to acknowledge your sin, your need for Christ, to turn to Him, to use this as an opportunity to examine yourself, and then to come to this feast to be strengthened, to be reminded of the victory that Jesus has accomplished for us. And ultimately then, as we we come to those, this meal, we come as those who can profess the faith that we hold using the words of uh, the Creed, the Apostles' Creed. So turn with me in your bulletin to page 9. And this creed is really a statement of the victory that Christ has accomplished for us as the true David. So read with me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven 
and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Because on the night that our Lord was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given things, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this 